Oh God, for your great name and for the people's great joy, please use your pastors to lead those who long to see you. We lay aside all weakness, inadequacy, and regret at the cross. We clothe ourselves in the life and righteousness of Christ that is freely given by grace and faith. And so in him and by him and for him, we look to the power of God and to the purposes of the Spirit and say, God, today you've called us to lead. Today you've anointed us to lead. Yesterday is gone. Tomorrow is not yet here. But the manna of the Holy Spirit is here for today's work, and he is sufficient. And so today, we will take up your cross and lead. Father, in the name of Jesus, all we have is today, this moment. Yesterday, gone. Forgiven, or not yet forgiven, because not yet confessed, but able to be forgiven. Tomorrow, all of the trials, not yet our turn to tackle them. We have today. So right now in this moment, clothe us with Christ, the power of the Spirit, that we would be changed today. In Christ I pray. Amen. <clears throat> While on vacation last week, my brother-in-law sent me a picture of Surfside Pier <clears throat> Uh, and it was obviously smashed with a recent hurricane. But when I looked at it, it just two phrases came into my mind. Something is beautiful and something is broken, which is a description of the world that we live in. Everything around us looks so broken, yet we also look around us and say it is still a world that is beautiful. When God finished creating the world six times in Genesis 1, as we saw last week, the Bible says, God said, everything I've done is Good. And so the question that we're all asking today in a broken world and a beautiful world, how can everything in Genesis 1 that God said repeatedly is so good, how can it be today so broken? And the answer is the entrance of man. Had God stopped on the sixth day of creation with just the birds and the animals, the Bible would have been a very short book. But because he created man... It is 1,165 chapters after that of repairing his damage. Then God said, Genesis 1:26, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. The Bible says that what separates man from all the other animals is made in the image of God. We have an awareness of God. We can know God. As a matter of fact, we're so aware of God, the book of Romans says you have to suppress the knowledge of God like a beach ball under water. We know that behind the scenes, everything that's happening today by way of blessing has come from God. We know that because we're made in the image of God. We have the ability to make choices and to evaluate before we even make the choice, is this going to lead to blessing or is this going to lead to harm? This is what it means to be made in the image of God, the ability to evaluate and determine the rightness or wrongness of a choice. We have the, we have the ability to pursue a dream, to think about how will these actions, one, two, three, four, lead to future accomplishments of dreams. Animals, all they have are assignments. They don't have dreams. It's not like a beaver building a dam because mm, one day I think I'd like to be an airline pilot. They don't have the ability to dream about a different kind of future. They are programmed to do certain tasks, but they don't have the ability to dream. I was, um, I don't know if you've ever read Ben Carson's book, um, 
gifted hands, but in it he talks about how up until basically high school he was angry, he was raised uh, by his mom, he did not apply himself in school, felt like he was the dumbest student in class, and now you know that he is a world-renowned pediatric neurosurgeon that went on to become secretary of, of housing under the administration. So this is what it means to be made in the image of God. You have the ability to change your future. You have the ability to, to dream about your future to the point that God even assigned to man in Genesis 1 that he is, in verse 26, to rule over creation, rearrange creation, to take land and make it into farmland, to take ponds and to make them into fishing ponds. Even to the point that God said, I'm going to give you the privilege of naming all the animals. All of these were indications that man is not a victim. Man has choices. All of this is part of being made in the image of God. We can think creatively like God. We can figure out problems like God. We can see different scenarios and figure out which one will likely solve a problem. And again, this is not a decision. Uh, this is not something that animals can do. They can't. Uh, we see in the book of Genesis, by the time the book is over, man has created uh, instruments made out of iron. He has created music, and he has the ability to even enjoy, enjoy, and say that it's very good. Animals can't do that. If you, I know you think your dog is wonderful, and your dog is wonderful, but and your dog is smart enough to live in your house without having to make payments, and and uh, you pay for medical bills, housing, food. So in in that sense, the dog is smart. But the dog, if you were to turn on a beautiful song in the middle of the, of the room this afternoon. The dog does not relish and cherish music. We have the ability to understand that things are very good. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. We also have the ability to think about the future. Uh, again, animals live for the moment. They don't think about the future. You never hear two dogs sitting around going, hmm, you think animals are in heaven? They don't think about the future, but the Bible says that God has set eternity in the hearts of man. And the last thing that it means to be made in the image of God is that we are to be made in, or we were to find our fulfillment in community. When God saw that Adam was alone in the garden, he quickly solved that by creating a wife, a helper for him. Now, when you read this verse, this verse is not saying at all that, um, that uh, Adam was incomplete without marriage. Not, not the statement there. He was incomplete without community. Holy Spirit, God the Son, God the Father are in community. And so mankind, like God, in whose image he's made, is supposed to be in community. And I think if there's anything that you and I realize today is, I mean, more than ever, how we crave community. It's why you're here today wearing masks. It's why you are uh, have missed this church for five months is you say, I miss community. And if you say, Richard, do you believe in conspiracy theories? Yes, I believe that in the conspiracy theory that the devil is always attempting to get us away from community. It is the will of God. I mean, children, for the first time in the history of the world, are begging to go to school <laughs> because of their longing for community. I saw on Fox television recently, even the stands on Fox baseball, this particular uh, season of baseball, 
they are digitizing and putting digital fans in the stadium so that when you're watching, you're seeing digital fans because it's not enough just to watch baseball. You want to watch baseball with people. And if they don't have the people, they at least have the, the sounds. So you can see that being made in the image of God is magnificent. It's like the greatest privilege in the world to have all this choice, gladness, appreciation, future-changing ability, creativity. You have all this. You would think, this is enough to make you happy. But not so with Adam and Eve. It wasn't enough to be made in the image of God. Genesis 2, now the Lord God planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put man he had formed. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, any, but you must not eat from one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. The existence of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden was a reminder that God is God, man is not, that man is vulnerable. God is eternal, man is vulnerable. And the only reason, what did the tree say to man? The only reason, man, you are alive is because you're connected to me. That's the purpose of the tree. The only reason you're alive is you are connected to me, and therefore if you ever cut off from me, you will die because I am your life. Adam and Eve didn't remember that, and the problems they unleashed would take the rest of the Bible to solve. Let's see how they fell from this privilege of being made in the image of God. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. If you are familiar with the, the literary style of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, the writers are not at all interested or not at all afraid of introducing new characters into a story without telling you any more information about them. We spend, uh, gosh, gallons of ink trying, to, well, who's the serpent? Where did he come from? And God said, not necessary for you to know. He just introduces, just introduces a serpent, who later the Bible calls the devil. You say, well, I want to know more. God says, big deal. What you need to know about this, I'm about to tell you. And that is the number one task and desire of the serpent is to steal your joy, to end your life. His mission is he wants to persuade you that God is not good and that life can be found some other way. So here's the serpent's message to Eve. You'll certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan's message is clear. You want to be like God? Eat of the tree. Now why, did it, why was that appealing to her? Because from the very beginning, we have this thing within us that wants to be self-sufficient, not God-reliant. And so Eve is telling her, if you want to be equal to God and therefore never have to rely on God, all you have to do is eat from this tree. Genesis 3, 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, contrast that with everything else God had made that was good, she said, no, this is good. It was good for food and pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some of it and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So the key here is the phrase that the fruit was good for food. She was believing that God had not been good enough. Six times in Genesis 1, he says, what I've done is good. And she has now believed the seduction of Satan that God was not good enough. And what they forgot is the reason why they fell is they did not realize how good God had been to them. Huge pathway to sin. Last week, Sunday night here, uh, David, Shannon, Keating, and students, and Danny V, best missions presentation I've ever seen as they recounted all that God done when they had done in their life when they went to Alaska. They showed some pictures, and when I looked at this, I thought, Garden of Eden, like stunning beauty. This is what Adam and Eve looked out their back porch every morning, but better. And they said, I just read it, this is not good enough. I read an interesting article this week. It's titled, Thoughts from a Hipster Coffee Shop. That's the kind of places I hang out. So <clears throat> the reason I liked it, it was written by a girl. She's 26 years old, Alyssa Algren, who's a, working on an MBA at college. The reason I liked it is because it was written from a 26-year-old's perspective, which is not a 59-year-old perspective. So I'm glad it was written from somebody in the culture, right in the middle of all this heat that's going on now, trying to determine is America a blessed nation or is America a bad nation. That's that, they're trying to figure that out. Are we blessed or are we bad? And so she said, I'm sitting in this coffee shop, typing on my MacBook, talking on my iPhone, drinking coffee, placing an order on Amazon that's going to be at my house tomorrow, looking out the window, seeing nice cars ride by. And if I were to ask other people in the coffee shop, my fellow students, is America a bad nation? They would say yes. And she said, it didn't register me. It's a bad nation. And this is, this is what she said in the article. My generation has only, this has finally dawned on me why you could say this. My, my generation you know, why would college kids say it's a bad nation? So she answers this. My generation has only seen prosperity. We have no contrast. We didn't live in the Great Depression or live through two world wars, the Korean War, the Vietnam War. We don't know what it's like to be without. We don't have a prosperity problem. We have an entitlement problem, an ungratefulness problem, and it's spreading like a plague. That was the problem with Adam and Eve. They had never seen the contrast to a perfect world, a good world. They were about to see what it's like to be separated from the goodness of God. After they ate, Genesis 3, 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for 
themselves. Score one for Satan. This is what he's after, to bring you from where you are now, sometime this week, into a sense of shame. That's, Satan has two desires. Number one is to steal your peace, your connection with God, your joy, and to get you to live, make a decision that yields a life of shame. And so, remember, they had been clothed up to this point in something that we don't understand. They were clothed in holy innocence. Now, shame. God doesn't want this for you. I spend so much time trying to persuade. Wish I could go back and tell my younger Richard what sin does to you every single time. Shame. God doesn't want this for you to live in shame, but sin will bring about shame every single time. This is how we say it. Whatever pleasure sin promises, it is not nearly as powerful as the shame that follows. But sin is also combined not just with shame, but sin is also combined with fear. Sin, you start to be ashamed and afraid. Genesis 3.8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. Now, this is tragic. Think about up till this day, God, king of glory, walking every morning through the garden, fellowshipping, eating breakfast with Adam and Eve. Now that's ruined because they're hiding from God because they're afraid of him. Now it's time for them to give an account. God is so good and loving, he makes us give an account. So he begins to probe, find out what had happened for their benefit. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? There's only one answer that's appropriate right now. Whenever you, know, you get caught, own it. This is like, this is like a one-word answer. Yes. That's the answer. Look at Adam's answer. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. The only thing he should have said is yes, but what he did is blame. I don't have the ability to, see, he's made in the image of God, so he's not a victim. He has the ability to change his future. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. Nope, nope, blame. I am like I am because of people. I am like I am because of circumstances. Blame. That's from the beginning. Blame. Then, confrontation with Eve. The Lord God said to the woman, what is, you've done? What is that you've done? Only one answer again is appropriate. <laughs> I, I sinned against the king of glory. That's your answer. I sinned against the king of glory. Nope. Got to give a reason. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So she goes the blame route, but she adds another type of blame. It's called, I'm a victim. Like, I'm made in the image of God, but I have no power to make good choices. I can't affect my future because this power is more powerful than me, this serpent power. It's called playing the victim. Now, 
We've already seen two consequences, their decisions, shame and fear. Let's look at five more consequences of that tragic day in the garden. Number one, and we'll just fly through these, marital unity is harmed. To the woman, God said, your desire, Genesis 3.16, will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So their unity, their oneness is, is greatly damaged. Now you have people who were one flesh. Now you have two people living as strangers in a relationship. I'm sure everybody can relate to how that feels, but that's the price of sin. Unity in a marriage is harmed. Number two, work becomes difficult and frustrating. You know what's amazing? Prior to the fall, do you know that work was like a hobby? It, like you didn't work for survival. You're just like an old man who had a garden to tend and I mean, look, that's what, look what happened. I mean, now the Lord, look at earlier, Genesis 2.8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in Eden, and he had put the man that there he had formed, and the Lord God made all kinds, the Lord made trees to grow. Prior to the fall, work was just a hobby. After the fall, it became survival. And, it, and the land began to work against them. Work now became frustrating. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. So here we have thorns, weeds, crabgrass, and amp it up, hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis, drought, floods, all in that verse, the price of sin. And the matter, matter of fact, the Bible says in Romans 8 that creation is longing to return to Eden. Number three, suffering and death are now a part of the world. Genesis 3.16, to Eve, God says, I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you'll give birth to a child. We're babysitting this week. Anna and Chris, daughter and her husband, will be here at the second service. We've had a blast. And, but I do remember the, the birth pains the, the day Anna gave birth. Like with every woman, not pleasant, uh, hard follow-up, all that. And even the, the birth itself was tense. Why is everybody tense? Because of this. Pain, tension, apprehension, all in this verse. This is part of the fall and the consequences of their sin. Then not just pains in birth, but pains associated with death. To Adam, God said, by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat food until you return to the ground. You're going to die. Since from the ground you were taken to dust, you will return. So he's going to die because he's now separated, no longer perfectly united to the God of life. Consequence number four of the fall, violence enters the world. Adam and Eve had two kids, brothers. You would think they would get along fine, and they would have prior to sin. Now being siblings after sin, look what happened. <clears throat> now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. This is the first murder, followed by many murders in the Old Testament. And number five consequence of Adam and Eve's decision, people are born with a desire to sin. Even before, uh, my grandson again, just on my mind today, born 
with an infection. An infection of sin. Even before he came into the world, the body was already corrupted because of Adam and Eve. So we read in Romans 5, 12, this is called original sin. Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. So when a baby is born, it's like his mother. You can imagine a mom on drugs. Whatever she's taking is in the bloodstream of the child. This is why sin comes into every baby that's born. Parents are sinful and Therefore, the child is born with the desire to rebel against God. Two questions. We'll skip through these maybe till next week. Now, let's look at God's solution to the problem of the, created by Adam and Eve. Number one, he provided clothing for Adam and Eve. Now, what we're doing last week and this week was on the goodness of God. I want to show you how good is God. Remember, he didn't have to create to begin with, and then once we messed it up, he didn't have to fix it. But God is so good that he creates. God is so good that he repairs. Three ways that he repaired. Number one, he provided clothing for Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. You remember in the, in the garden when they fell? They tried to clothe themselves with uh, trees, plant, plants from the uh, leaves from the plants and trees. This is our efforts. When we sin against God, we try to do something to fix it, but we're not properly clothed. God, in his goodness, sacrifices an animal. That animal gives its life for our need. This is a foretaste of all the sacrifices that would be sacrificed in the Old Testament until the perfect blood sacrificed for our sins. Number two, what did God do to show his goodness? He protected man by, by banishing man. Genesis 3, very unusual verse, 22. Man must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden. So up to this time, man had eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but had not yet eaten the tree of life. So God said, he can't eat from that tree or he'll live forever separated from me. So God in his goodness created or banished them so they would never touch that tree. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's goodness. He creates a situation where man will die outside the garden so that one day he'll be able to re-enter the garden. That's the goodness of God. And finally, how do we see the goodness of God? He promised an evil-conquering Savior. Not only did God speak to Adam and Eve about the consequences of sin, he also spoke to the serpent as well. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So here is a massive promise to Eve that there's going to be conflict through the generations between Satan and her descendants. But finally, there would be one descendant 
that would be so special there would be a conflict where the serpent metaphorically grasps the heel of a descendant of Eve, bites with a fatal wound the heel of a descendant of Eve, and then that descendant crushes the snake on its head. This is the, an unusual, beautiful pointing to Jesus Christ. If that's all that we had in Scripture, we would be confused. We wouldn't know who that person is. But if you keep reading the prophets of the Bible and get all the way to the New Testament, finally we see that this descendant of Eve was actually a descendant of God. And it was the Son of God born of a woman that would defeat Satan's evil grip on the world. Why did it take the Son of God? Because Adam and Eve had committed an infinite sin Sinning against infinite goodness, therefore, the answer was infinite punishment. And here is the question of all questions. What kind of man, descendant of Eve, what kind of man has the ability to bear the infinite punish of God, yet not be infinitely destroyed by God? That's the question of the Bible. What kind of man has the ability to bear the infinite punishment of God, yet not be infinitely destroyed by God? It would have to be a man who is both man and God. And that's who God sent to be sacrificed, the blood sacrifice for the sin of the world, as Peter tells us, the unique identity of Jesus Christ. Acts 3.13, talking to the very crowd who crucified Jesus, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, you disown the holy and righteous one and ask that our murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. So this is our, this is our, our hint of why is Jesus so special than any other descendant of Adam and Eve? Because he is the author of life, the creator of the world. This is who they killed, the Son of God. Now think about this. Jesus was standing before Pilate, Pilate says, you want the author of life to be released? And they knew he was the author of life because they'd already seen his miracles. They knew he had the power to raise people from the dead and healed crippled limbs. They knew he was the author of life. Author of life, murderer. Which one you want me to set free? The people, and you and I were in that crowd, the people said, set the murderer free, kill the author of life. How good is God? So good that he was more merciful to that crowd than he was his own son. Please let that sink in. God is so merciful that he treats mankind more gently than he treated his own son. Who did the crowds crucify that day? The author of life. But it's impossible for the author of life to stay dead, which is why we live. Verse 15, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. The only person who can save the world is the person who created the world. Died for the world, rises for the world, creates the world, crucified for the world, alive for the world. And all you have to do to be made new to receive this life from the author of life is to obey these simple little words also from the Apostle Peter in his preaching. 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. How good is God? That's how easy he made it to be saved. I like what Kevin DeYoung says in closing. God has made known to us the path of life. And all we have to do to walk down that path is to repent and believe. He appeals to us not with a show of brute force, but wooing us with the kindness of Christ our Savior. And when we turn to him, he eagerly accepts us and he runs to us faster than we run to him. That's the goodness of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these past two weeks of looking at your goodness in mountains and rivers, butterflies and birds, in oxygen that comes from the plant leaves, and Lord, the sun that keeps us warm and produces life on earth, a sun that draws so much water out of the ocean and causes it to rain on our grass and crops so we can eat. Oh, Father, you're so good. You're worthy to be worshipped just because of creation's goodness. But then, Lord, you're also good because of how you act in our life and providence. Eighteen years ago, you and your providence chose to plant a church in the city so that we would gather and hear the message of life and hope today. Lord, people are going to go to heaven here and around the world in Alaska and India because of the message of hope that's going out from this place. You and your providence, Lord, did that. You took an old car lot and turned it into a church. In your providence, Lord, you provided protection from this virus. We thank you that we got to come to church today because we're, we've been, we're safe. Thank you for that. Lord, but most of all, we thank you for your goodness in Jesus. Author of life. Author of the creation. Author of the human body author of every breath, author of every thought, of every word that I will write and speak and we'll hear. Author, crucified, so that we would be covered not with plants and leaves, covered with the blood of the Son of God, made new, old gone, everything restored, headed back to Eden, on the way to heaven, another chance forever chance to live with you. Thank you, Jesus. Would somebody say yes to you today? In Christ I pray, amen.